This podcast is for information only and should not be considered legal advice. There is no representation that the legal services to be performed by LOCA are better than the services of other attorneys. There is no guarantee of the outcome. Success is rendered on a case-by-case basis. Keith, I want to thank you for joining us today on the podcast. We typically talk about student defense cases, but that's not all we do at K. Altman Law. We handle a lot of other areas. And one of those that we're working in is the terrorism realm. And you recently went to the Supreme Court to argue a couple of cases. There was the Google, uh, Gonzalez versus Google and Tamane versus Twitter. Can you tell me about these cases? What's their, let's start with Gonzalez. What was that case about? Well, when we talk about one case, we're really talking about both cases because the issues are common to both because of the way that they got there they're somewhat separate. So the Gonzalez case was the Paris nightclub attack back in 2015, where there was one American killed, Naomi Gonzalez. And we brought suit against uh, just Google via YouTube in that particular case um, on behalf of Naomi's father. Soon after that, Naomi's mother uh, decided to join the case and they're represented by separate counsel. And we've been working together on this. As far as the Tomna case goes, that essentially, that was the Istanbul nightclub bombing from January, December 31st to January 1st of 2017. And in that particular case, the perpetrator uh, who conducted the attack, he was caught and confirmed that ISIS had a direct involvement in those cases. And once in that particular case, we brought suit against Google, Facebook and Twitter essentially in both cases for providing material support to ISIS and allowing them to conduct, to use their platforms to conduct terrorist operations by raising money, recruiting, and radicalizing individuals. Okay, so let's dig into that a a little more. How does a Google platform or a Twitter platform aid a terrorist? Well, without social media, ISIS would be 50 guys standing around a campfire in the middle of the desert, chanting, jumping up and down. But because of social media, it gives them a virtually unlimited platform in which to reach out to other individuals and try to bring them into the fold. So that that's the essence of how social media has really led to the growth of organizations such as ISIS without as I said, without social media, ISIS would be nothing. But Google has literally millions, same with Twitter, millions, tens of millions of users. They can't obviously track every single user. So how are they responsible for for what someone says on their platform? Well, that's where there's a law called Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, which essentially is supposed to insulate publishers from contact Conduct Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, which is supposed to protect online service providers who publish information prepared by third parties. But that's not what's going on here. Um, Google, Facebook, and Twitter and others allow um, social media to post, uh, allow terrorist organizations to post information on their platforms. Now, while there are tens of millions or maybe hundreds of millions of users, This information is not hidden in the dark web. It has to be found. And so there are various searches that they expect individuals to run to find and locate this material. Furthermore, these platforms also promote 
terrorist content to individuals based upon what they know about you and what you've looked at in the past, they decide content that you should be uh, promoted. So, so if I look at a terrorist video, Google's going to tell me here's 10 more terrorist videos? That's in essence what will happen, yes. And so how does, so that makes Google obviously in, in some ways responsible for that content. Uh, what's the counter argument to that? Well, the, the social media companies argue, number one, we can't possibly monitor everything that's on our site. It's just too much. Number two, they say that by holding us accountable, you are violating Section 230. And the reality of the situation is, number one, they can monitor the, con the content of their platforms. They do that on a routine basis. We've all heard about situations where social media... Um, where they took down certain content or banned certain users. They do that all the time. But uh, on the second issue, we're not seeking to hold them accountable as a publisher. They are assisting ISIS in conducting terrorist operations. And there's another statute called the Justice Against Sponsors of Terrorism Act, which in essence says it's designed to provide civil litigants with the broadest possible basis of recovery consistent with the Constitution of the United States without any other limitation. And Section 230 is an immunity. It is not creating liability. It's taking liability away. And so the reality of the situation is that since these companies are not acting as publishers in terms of the functionality that they are engaged in and provide to uh, ISIS and others, then Section 230 does not protect them when they engage in that conduct. So what? Talk a little bit about the history of Section 230. It's not, it was not originally an Internet law, was it? Actually, it was. It was, came out in 1996 after um, Prodigy, was, which was an online platform at the time, was sued because they failed to take down content that was posted by a third party that led to some stock manipulation. Uh, as a result of that, that's when Section 230 was enacted was in direct response to that particular case and to give internet service providers the ability to to launch shall we say uh back in 1996 25 years ago things were very very different than they are today and i don't think that they anticipated or foresaw or expected to include some of the functionality that exists today such as suggesting content to individuals such as um matching up advertising with individuals based on what they're looking at and based on what they know about you. That is not traditional publishing functionality. And when that takes place, we believe that takes us outside of 230. All right, so Prodigy AOL days, the, the baby days of the internet, really they were simply posting content. And so we've morphed now to the point where we're not only posting content, we're suggesting more stuff that you might like. And that sort of forms the basis here. The Twitter case is a little bit different because we're dealing with the Terrorism Act. Talk to me a little bit about how how the Twitter case is tied somewhat to the Gonzalez case. Well, the issues are the same in both cases. Section 230 applies in both cases. The Anti-Terrorism Act applies in both cases. Uh, it just so happens that the way Google was ruled upon, um, it was on Section 230 issues and... Tomna was ruled upon on the Anti-Terrorism Act. Now, Tomna actually was a victory 
for plaintiffs in that particular case, and it is the defendants uh, who appealed uh, the ruling in Tomna to the Supreme Court. Um, okay. But, but in essence, once again, that's about um, Congress has effectively said, thou shalt not help terrorist organizations. And the key issue there is that the defendants are arguing that in order to have liability against them, you have to show that the terrorist, that the defendant, Google, Facebook, or Twitter, knew what ISIS was going to do with the assistance that they provided to ISIS. That is not what the law says. We don't think that's a reasonable reading of the law. If you help a terrorist organization and that terrorist organization uh, engages in a terrorist act, you can and should and you can be held liable. All right, so let's step back a little bit from the cases and talk more about this one all the way to the Supreme Court. Now, the Supreme Court is very different than what we think of court when we look at TV. So how does a case get to the Supreme? How do these cases get to the Supreme Court? And what's that argument look like when you get there? Well, these cases were filed in the, in the uh, Northern District of California. Uh, they were... Both cases were lost. They were appealed to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, which is where um, uh, we argued those cases. The Gonzalez case, when the Ninth Circuit ruled, was lost, and, and they affirmed the uh, decision of the lower court. The Tomna case was reversed, and plaintiffs prevailed in that case, but it would have gone back to the uh, district court on the Section 230 grounds, and probably would have been dismissed and backed up. After the cases were decided by the Ninth Circuit, uh, we attempted to have the entire Ninth Circuit, all the judges um, rule on the cases, that was denied. We then filed what was called a cert petition on the Gonzalez case and the defendants filed a cert petition on the Tomna case uh, to the Supreme Court to see if they would hear the case and the Supreme Court decided to hear both cases. So that's a fairly long process, isn't it? I mean, we're talking almost years here. The um, the Ninth Circuit's opinion came out in June of 2021. And it was about um, 15 months until the Supreme Court granted cert and decided they were going to hear the cases. Wow. That is a long time to wait for, for justice. So talk to me now about the Supreme Court process. You've just completed that a few weeks ago. Uh, what happens there? Well, once you're at the Supreme Court, it's a, it's a whole different level of majesty, shall we say. Uh, the courtroom is smaller than one would think, although it's, it's still a fairly large courtroom. The justices sit at the front. Um, there are nine spaces for each of the justices. They sit just as... Uh, Chief Justice um, Roberts sits in the middle, and then the justices go back and forth between on the other side of him in order of seniority. Um, when you walk in there, uh, there'll, there'll be a, uh, there's the bar section, people who are admitted to the Supreme Court bar, as I am. There is also open to the general public, where the public can line up and you know come in and observe the Supreme Court. Uh, and then at the very front, there is a table, or there are a couple of tables right up against the, the bench where the justices sit. That is for the litigants. And uh, you, um, it, it is truly a very magnificent place, very, very high ceilings. 
and there is just an air to it that it is it, it's kind of hard to explain until you've been there. So what's the what's the argument process look like when you once you get there? Well, the the court is supposed to have strict time limits on the arguments. We were given um, for the uh, Gonzalez case, uh, the Solicitor General, which is effectively the U.S. government's voice at the Supreme Court, uh, decided to get involved in the case and wanted to speak on behalf of us in the Gonzalez case. Uh, we were supposed to get 20 minutes. The Solicitor General was supposed to get 15 minutes and the defendants were supposed to get 35 minutes. That was a total of 70 minutes. In reality, uh, the court after it gives you about two minutes to speak uninterrupted, and then they begin questioning. And there's two series of questioning. The, the court just goes back and forth in terms of whoever wants to ask questions. After that takes place, Justice Roberts then goes through each of the justices in order of seniority and gives them an opportunity to ask specific questions. And the situation uh, was a little different for Tomna, where we were the uh, responding party. So the defendants got 20 minutes. The solicitor general who came out against us in that case got 15 minutes and we got 35. But nevertheless, the court allowed two hours and 45 minutes of argument on each day, um, showing that there was quite a bit of interest on behalf of the justices in both of these matters. So in that oral argument period, what were the what were the big issues that the justices seemed to be focusing on? Well, I, I, I think in terms of applicability beyond terrorism, the Section 230 Gonzalez case had issues that, that are much more far-reaching and can involve a lot of situations that have nothing to do with terrorism. And there was just, there were lots of questions in terms of what does the world look like with, uh, with limiting the scope of Section 230? What happens to things like search engines? Are they subject to liability because what they do would be outside of 230? <clears throat> there was a, a, just a great deal of questions as to what the world will look like based upon the Supreme Court's decisions. And Justice Kagan made an interesting statement, I'm paraphrasing a bit, but basically said, you're not talking to nine of the greatest Internet experts, which you know demonstrated that they realized that there is a lot of technical issues that take place here. But in the end, though, they are still experts in the law and, and how to apply the law. And what they come out with will certainly have very far-reaching implications. You even got questions from Justice Thomas, who's typically a very uh, quiet justice when folks are speaking. That's true. Justice Thomas, I believe, is the person uh, behind why cert was granted in these cases. He's been very interested in the Section 230 issue. And he did, he did ask some questions, and in the past, he has been one that does not ask questions. So um, that was um, certainly an eye-opening situation. Also interesting was Justice Gorich was not there at all and actually was ill. And on both days, he participated remotely, which is, I don't know if that's been done before, but it was certainly done during our arguments. And by the way, to be clear, I did not make the arguments. We had a a gentleman from the University of Washington, Eric Schnapper, he is the one who made the arguments. So the arguments make up a part of what goes into the decision. There's a whole lot more, though, that these justices look at than just that 90 minutes or 70 minutes of uh, back and forth. Uh, there were briefs filed on both sides. 
I'm sure that they're doing research on their own. Can you expand on that a little bit? Well, in addition to the briefs from the parties and the Solicitor General, uh, individuals can do what's called amicus briefs, where basically they're friend of the court and they will chime in on one side or the other and provide uh, additional information to the court from their own perspective. And that can become a very important part of what the Supreme Court looks at, but they are free to uh, do significant research and, and look at the issue. And we expect that they will beyond the, the argument that took place. So what happens now? You've made the arguments, the briefs have been filed. What's the next step in this process? We wait for the Supreme Court to reach a decision. And, you know, generally we would expect to get a decision by June. Uh, I don't think, despite what anybody says, I don't think you can really um, pick up on what the Supreme Court intends to do here. I think they're going to do whatever they think is the right thing to do. And I have, I have no hints as to what that's going to be. Oh, that was going to be my next question if you had a prediction. Uh, I, I don't. I don't have a prediction. I think I'm, I know they're going to do something. They have to, but I don't know what it's going to be, and I don't know whether it's going to help the cases. So this was focused on terrorism, but you you touched on it a little bit. Section two hundred and thirty has an implication way beyond just the terrorism cases. How would a would a, a ruling in your favor potentially affect those other areas? Well, I, it, it's not just text section two hundred and thirty. Section two hundred and thirty takes away liability. There has to be liability. So you can't just, you're not going to be able to just sue, even if the, the, the court comes out and says that uh, Section 230 doesn't protect social media in the way that they think. You're not going to be able to just sue. There's got to be some underlying liability there, some other issue um, that is also takes place before that you're able to bring suit. Well, Keith, I want to thank you for giving us some time today. Uh, we are all going to sit by and wait to see what happens when this decision comes out. And I'm sure we'll get back together and talk about the implications. Thank you for being here today. If you have a legal question, give us a call at 1-888-984-1341 or check us out on the web at kaltmanlaw.com.